Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for everything you do for us. And we just thank you for the freedom and the opportunity we have to come and worship you and to sing praises to you and to study your word and to hopefully learn and take things out that we can use to bring others into Christ, Lord. I just ask you to be with us as we go through this class. Help us for it to be something we can apply and learn and, and, and look at the, the new that you brought into the world. And it's in Christ that we pray. Amen. All right, just a review real quick. Um, we've kind of gone through, we went through the Old, the Old Testament. We looked at the, the, new, the Old Covenant, the Old t- Temple. And last week we looked at the destruction of the Temple and, and Jesus' prediction of that, of it being um, destroyed and leveled uh, to its very foundation. And we also started to, to look at the church and the establishment of what Jesus called his ecclesia. Um, but one thing I, I, I want to correct myself on, last week I said that King James was the head of the Catholic Church, and that was incorrect. King James was the what's called the Supreme Governor of the Church of England, which was a break off of the Catholic Church. So I wanted to make sure that I corrected myself on there. I'm going through that, I spoke incorrectly, and, and I don't like to pass on false information if I can help it. Yeah, first mistake of the year, I wish. So, all right, so today we're going to dive back in, and we're, we're still, we're covering the new, and, and we're really going to dive into about three different areas of new that, that and, and try to hopefully, by the end of the class, bring them all into one uh, that we're going to look at. And I'm going to continue with the Revelations 21.5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, and he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. So I want to talk about the ecclesia a little bit more. I want to, since that's where we kind of finished in the middle of that last week. Christ established his, his ecclesia, his, his movement. It was meant to be a movement, a gathering. And, and we looked at it. If we look at the translations, I think, I want to make sure I get this correct. I believe the term ecclesia is in the New Testament 119 times. And, and when you translate that correctly, for the most part, it is a, an assembly, a group of people, a movement. And in fact, it was such a movement that the church itself was referred to or called, and they called themselves the way. They were a direction. The, the Greek term translated here actually means a road, path, or street. So they, they, were a, they were going somewhere. They weren't tied to a building. They weren't tied to a regional area. They weren't tied to a sacred spot like a temple or, or a particular building. They were just moving, and they were going everywhere. And so they referred themselves to the way because they were the way, and they were moving. So that was the establishment of what Christ started and what he wanted and what he was trying to, to move forward and people to see that, you know. And that's why I covered the destruction of the temple the way I did because God is talking about, look, I'm coming in, and this is what was, what was set. What, what, everything was kind of regional. Everything was set on a certain spot. That's not going to happen anymore. And he, and he wipes it out, and he starts a new movement, which is not established to any boundaries, established to anything, and it's a way forward. And, and that's why I wanted to focus on it the way I did, because we've lost a little bit of that. The church itself's kind of lost a little bit. They, they've pulled themselves inward. And this is not just the Church of Christ. This is most... Christendom any, anywhere, they've pulled themselves inward, that their main focus is things around their building, you know, 
you, you look at how some of them do, you know, we, we'll spend, and, and nothing wrong with this, you know, I'm, I'm going to clarify that before, but we will spend and put our focus millions and millions and millions of dollars on a building and then not put the same kind of effort and focus into bringing people into this building. And so we, we've lost our, our focus a little bit. Now, there's a need for a building in the way we do things now, which was a little bit different than what they were done uh, when the church first started. You know, we, the, it, it, that, that needs there. But it needs to be done in a, in a proper manner. So we need to make sure that it's not tied to, and the, to the church and the building and the structure. So I don't want anyone to misconstrue what I'm saying, that we shouldn't have church buildings and we shouldn't have you know, those type of things. What I'm saying is our focus needs to be what their focus was, which was their movement and was going out and, and, and bringing people in to the lost. There's nothing wrong with having a building as long as it's not your focus and the things around it's not your focus. So he starts this new movement, this new church, but in that, in the, he's going to replace the old contract as well. So he comes up with a new contract or a new covenant. And what's interesting is right up to the end, right up to the very end, his followers did not get it. They did not understand what he was bringing in, this new establishment and this new contract. And I want to put it this way. So they have, they're having their last supper, and I'm going to use this as an example. So say Easter Sunday... I come in Easter Sunday to teach Bible class, and I kick off Bible class by saying, you know what, from now on, I'm asking that this church no longer celebrate Easter in the way of celebrating Christ and his death and his resurrection, but I want you guys to start celebrating me. What would y'all's reaction be? You're going to ask me to leave. Some of you are going to get up and leave. Some other leaders are going to be like, uh, yeah, you need to stop teaching now. You're, you're done, right? But this, this is a... I'm sorry, what? No, house sent me. <laughs> okay, he needs, right? Y'all need to start celebrating and, and remembering me. So that's exactly what Jesus did. Um, when he, with his last meal with his apostles and, and disciples, this is probably, and, and I think with everything going on in that day and that night, I think it's lost a little bit in translation. But this was one of his most offensive statements that he's, that he's actually talks about when he's, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. And so we can read it that if we look at Luke 22, verses 14 through 19. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So they are celebrating the Passover, which was the big thing. For the Jewish, this celebrates their, the, the Passover that happened before their exodus out of Egypt. You know, they, they put the blood over the doorway and the angels passed over them and so they weren't killed. This was a huge celebration. This was one of, this is, you know, which becomes the equivalent to our communion, right? And this is what he's celebrating here. So they would celebrate this every single year and it was very important. There was a I, I researched a little bit the process of which what they went through. It's very, very detailed on how they celebrated, what they ate, and, and different things. So he said to them, I earnestly desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he's talking about his kingdom that he's establishing, which is going to be his ecclesia, his church. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. 
For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So this is where he starts getting real offensive. And when he had taken some bread, so and given thanks, breaking of bread was a big part of their, their Passover feast. He broke it, I think, and I could be wrong on this, but I think they actually break bread like three or four different times during this, this meal. He broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he is taking their Passover meal and he's replacing it with himself. In the Jewish time, this would have been a very odd thing. Like y'all said, if I came in here and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to replace the Easter celebration with celebrating myself, you know, you, people are going to be offended by that and you're going to kick you out and, like they said, put you in a loony bin. But this is what Jesus is doing. He's coming into their Passover celebration and telling them, okay, from now on, this is about me. It's no longer about the Passover, about coming out of Egypt. It's about me. And then, he, then they eat, they finish their meal, and then it continues on. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So not only is he saying from now on you're going to celebrate me, there's a new covenant that's going to happen because I'm about to spill my blood. And so this was the end of the Passover. He establishes the end of the Passover, and he starts the new covenant or the new contract into the new church that he had just established. So, looking at all this, we look at it and it's like, okay, well, that's, you know, we've grown up with this. This is interesting. In that day and in that time, all of this stuff would have been extremely odd and, and extremely offensive to a lot of people. And this is, again, why the Jewish people or the Jewish leaders hated him so much because he was getting rid of their system, their way of doing things, his line of work or their line of work and how they made a lot of their money, he was coming in and destroying all of that. And, and they knew that, that that's what he was doing. So if you, if you look at this, the Jewish Christians struggled with this. And so we're going to skip forward real quick a little bit because I want to under, make people understand why we need to make sure that we don't bring some of the old thoughts, some of the Old Testament thought into the New Testament and how serious the Bible is about doing that and, and sticking with the new and establishing the new. And so we have the new church, the new movement, the new contract. You know, he does away with the Passover, and he comes in, and he's bringing his new covenant. And then you, you know, the, the church is established. We're going to skip, skip a little bit. But Jesus knew that they would, and he actually refers to some things about getting rid of the old and bringing in the new. If you go back to... The Sermon on the Mount. Now, like I said, I'm going to skip around a little bit, but this is going backwards a little bit. But if you look at what he talks about on the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about the old law. And he's talking about, you know, he gets through the Beatitudes and then he transitions to several chapters of, you have heard, but I say, and I'm not, I'm not going to read all this, but it starts in Matthew 5. And just read through this. And so he goes in and he gives 10 new, oh, go ahead. Right. Yep. Yeah, they didn't realize that until he died and, and came back. Yep. 
But even after he died and came back, they still struggled with the old. And that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to look at how important it is not to bring old things back into the new. And, and there's a reason why we're... I'm, I'm, yep. Yep. Exactly. So he's in here, he's saying, you have heard. So he's taken him basically, he's taken the old law, which was the Ten Commandments, and he's saying, okay, you've heard this said, but I'm telling you it's this. And, he, and, he, and he's either expanding them or he's bringing them in a little bit. Like, you know, he talks about uh, eye for an eye. He said, you have heard for eye for an eye. And he said, okay, but I say, okay, instead of eye for eye, I say turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you, turn them you know, the other cheek. Then he, then he takes adultery, which they had, or, or in divorce, and, and he ties it up and he said, you've heard that, you know, don't commit adultery. But then he said, if you even look at someone in the wrong way, then you've committed adultery. So he takes these things and he expands on them, so he's replacing them. But before he gets into all this, in Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And, and there's a difference. A lot of people think, well, isn't this the, the same thing? If you abolish the law, you, you're completely getting rid of it. He didn't come to get rid of it. He came to replace. And, and there's a difference if you look at the Greek term here for, for fulfill, it's pleru. Pl, pl, I, can't, I can't roll my R's. So, <laughs> so, but the way that it's translated is bring to an end. So his job was to come and bring the old law to an end. It was no longer necessary. It had become, it was, through him, it was becoming obsolete. So he is bringing the old law to an end so basically, he is saying, I'm the end of the line here. We've had all the prophets. We've had all these things. I'm the end here. I'm, I'm, I'm bringing it to the end. The old's gone. You know, it's a good reference point. It's a good re- for reference material. But we're no longer going to, we're going to, we're going to take and apply what's in this to us. We're going to, we're just setting up a new law and a new covenant. So then he basically skipped forward several chapters. He tells them to go. And in this, it's interesting. I don't know how many people look at the, the scriptures this way and look at it, but when he tells them to go and to make new disciples, he says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And pay attention to this, teaching them to observe the Old, the old Testament and the old laws, Right? He says, all that I have commanded you. At this point, he is saying, we're going forward. You are to observe what I have commanded you going forward. And we're going to look at that here in a second. But they did that. But several chapters later, they still struggle with that old. And it would be the same way with us. If you, if you grew up for, and for several thousand years, you had a community that had practiced something a certain way, and then all of a sudden, someone comes in and says, okay, now you've got to start practicing it, and you've got to start doing it this way. You're still going to have that struggle, and you're going to tend to want to bring those old things over with you and, and, and bring some of those old practices. So we skip forward a little bit. You know, the church has been established. They've been going out. They've been going out. You know, you've had Peter, and you've had um, 
Paul brought back, or you know, Saul brought in, who's now Paul brought in, and they've taken the, the message out to the Gentiles, and they've been spreading the word of God. Well, all of a sudden, we start having some conflict in the church between the Jews and the Gentiles. And in Acts 15, it kind of comes to a head, and it says, Some men came from Judea and began teaching the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So again, they start bringing the old in, right? They're bringing the old back into the new, saying, okay, you have to do this in order to be saved, which we know is not the, the, the right way. And so to kind of get all this taken care of, they, they establish or meet, and it's called what's called in the, in the New Testament called the Jerusalem account, uh, Council or the Council of Jerusalem, uh, some people call it. And it's in Acts 15. And so they get together, and, and they start meeting in Acts 15.5, some of the Pharisees who had believed stood up. So these are Pharisees, people who were Pharisees, who had now converted to Christianity, had become Christians and believed. They stood up and they were wanting to make sure, so they say this, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So they were saying, look, they have to do this. They have to abide by the old law. And then we go through and there's Peter gets up and Peter talks about his... Um, vision that he had where, where, where God comes to him and says you know, to eat what formerly was unclean. And basically it's Peter's God telling Peter that he needs to go out and take the message to um, the Gentiles and that they're not unclean and that you know, we're not under these old laws anymore. What I've provided you is not unclean. Barnabas gets up and speaks. Paul gets up and speaks. And then James, the brother of Jesus, gets up and speaks. And he kind of says the same thing. But then he says this, and I, I think we can learn from this verse right here. In Acts 15, 19, he says, And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I think that's, it ties into a lot of this stuff. But I think sometimes, you know, we, we bring new Christians in and we, and we pile things on top of them, right? We make, we make it a, little, a lot harder than it has to be to be a Christian by some things either that were our customs or our traditions instead of just doing what we should do. But what I love about this, so they establish this, and they establish some guidelines. There's some things that they say, okay, you know, no, they, the, the Gentiles don't have to uh, abide by the old law and the old ways, but for the sake of peace, we want you to, to do some things. You know, and it basically was don't eat uh, meat, sacrifice to idols, blood, and then uh, sexual immorality abstained from those things, and there was one more. I can't remember the, the fourth one. But basically they're saying, yeah, the Gentiles, they don't have to abide by the old law. We don't have to abide by the old law. None of this stuff's applied. But let's do this because of so much of the traditions in the Bible. But then Paul takes it further because it still is an issue. Oh. I was just going to say, Paul, he, he, he scores it. He dove right into Peter saying, who are you to make them be circumcised and do away with Christ. You, yep. What are you killing them all over? I mean, <laughs> yep. His death mean nothing. So Paul, Paul, everything. Paul does. He comes in and he takes it even further. So they're still having this problem even in Galatians. In Galatians five, and I want y'all to pay attention to this because I believe it, it, it's not. They're talking about circumcision here, but I believe this applies more to, to just circumcision. In Galatians 5, 1 through 12, 
It says, it was from freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And the yoke of slavery he is talking about here is the old law. And he says, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And then he expands on it. He says, I say again, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Meaning if you go back and you establish one piece of the old law and start to abide by it, then you are committed to abiding into the entire law. So when I hear a Christian say, well, the Bible says an eye for an eye, or we go back and we reference Old Testament law and try to bring it into the new, you might want to be careful with that. Because Christ, or Paul is saying here, if you're going to bring one piece of the old law in, you have to abide by the whole law, every single bit of it, and no one's going to be able to do that. He says, you have been, if you, so if you do this, you have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. Very serious. See, that would mean Jews today, whether it is Israel or wherever, if they actually abided by the whole law, they still have a chance to get to heaven? If they can abide by the entire law and not do anything against the law said, then yes, they could go to heaven. That's impossible. No one's going to do that <laughs> because we're all sinful. I mean, you, you take the first Ten Commandments and... You're going to break one of those. There's 600 laws that they have to abide by. About 600 laws they have to abide by. Huh? And that was what they made. No, that was before what they made up. Well, there was 10 commandments, and then if you take, if you go, uh, I think in Exodus, or Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those, those were, there's about 600 laws in there that were established, that God established that they had to abide by. Yeah, all kind of dietary laws. There was moral laws, dietary laws. Um, I forget the third. There's three different groups of laws that they had to abide by. Yeah. Yeah. So what Paul is saying here is if we go back and we try to start taking some of those old laws and apply them to ourselves, then we're obligated to the whole law. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't abide by the first Ten Commandments right? Those are good moral laws, and we're going to look at some of that. You know, we, we still need to follow the moral laws, but we don't need to apply them to ourselves in a way that is our salvation, right? And we're going to look at that here in a little bit, because when brought in, yep. replace the old law, so even though he teaches some things that's in the old law, it's what he's teaching, not Exactly. So what Ronald just said was, what he, what, if you look at what Jesus taught, he brought a lot of things from the old law into the new and, and established. And so we still have to abide by those teachings because, like we just covered a minute ago, go teach, go obeying what I have commanded you. And so, and if you take, if, and if you actually look at what he did with the old law, he actually made it harder. It's simpler, but it's a whole lot harder to to do. And, and we'll look at that here in a minute. So. Diving into this even, so he's saying if you do this, you, you abide yourself to these old law, you're going to be cut off from God's grace. 
He says, For we, through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. And there's a lot of things we can put in place of that. There's a lot of things. that they, Whether you do it or don't, it means nothing. It says, But faith working through love. I highlighted that because we're going to focus in on that here in a minute. Faith working through love. And then he, and he, and he, talk, then he starts going in. And this is how even more serious, and for the men in here, pay attention to this. You were running well who hindered you from obeying the truth. The persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you who bear his judgment whoever he is, and then he takes it further. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? So basically he's saying, if I was still teaching that you had to be circumcised, they wouldn't be persecuting me. They are. So I, obviously I've stopped. Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. So if we go back to circumcision, the cross is, is, is pointless. He's saying that's been established. And then he stops and pays attention to this. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. All right, so we're talking about circumcision, right? And at the very end, he says, I wish they would mutilate themselves. The Greek translation here is emasculate themselves. Anyone know what emasculate means? To cut off. So I said, men, pay attention. This is how serious he's taking this, of them going back and trying to, to bring the old back into the new. He's saying it's serious enough that whoever is teaching you this, that I wish they would go and cut their manhood off. That's exactly what he's saying. I'm not sure I understand. <laughs> All right. That was good timing. Even, even Siri didn't get that one. Siri didn't understand that one. Oh, that's funny. Oh, goodness. Well, I'm glad Siri, Siri probably wouldn't understand. All right. Yeah, she's listening. Um, yeah, she's learning. Oh, my goodness. So with all that, this then moves us into, we see the new movement, right, which is Christ's ecclesia, his, his movement. Then we go into the new covenant, which he establishes. And then we get a new commandment. So we've had the, the Ten Commandments and the Old Laws. And Christ then goes into a new commandment. And I'm going to look at this from a vertical versus horizontal view. All right? And I call it ver either vertical or morality Christianity or horizontal morality Christianity. The Old Testament is what I would refer to as vertical. Everything is between is up and down, right? It's between God and, and, the, and that person or that group of people. Vertical assumes God's primary concern is how our behavior affects him. And we bring a lot of that into the church a lot of times, is we have to do things a certain way in order to please God. And that, we make that the most important. Not to say that things aren't important, that we shouldn't do things, but we make that the most important. Vertical is very old covenant because everything was, well, I came, I had to do sacrifices to God. It was very vertical in my acceptance and being pushed forward another year and my sins being forgiven and pushed to the end. But here's what vertical, especially in the new, 
tends to lead to. Vertical tends to lead to how far can I get away from God and still be okay in the fact that, well, what, what exactly do I have to do in order to get in heaven? What are those things? You know, so how far away can I get, God, before you're not going to let me in? <clears throat> the other flip side of vertical, what you see is how close can I get to God? Right? How, how good can I be? How, how well can I do? And then what tends to come out of that is a very judgmental and condescending type attitude of, look, I'm up here, I'm this close to God, I'm, what, you know, I'm doing good, look at all y'all below me. And I believe what Christ brought in, especially with the New and the New Testament, is more of a horizontal morality or a horizontal Christianity, meaning this way. And we're going to look at that, we'll start with that in this way. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. This is still part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. For be, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So here's, I want you to think about this for a minute. So one, they're coming, they, they would come and give a yearly sacrifice for the, as their offering. A lot of these people would have traveled, and the people he's talking to would have traveled two to three days to get to come and present this offering. So God's telling them they're waiting in this long line to do offering to, at this time of the year for their sacrifice. And God's telling them, before you come and try to reconcile yourself with me, you need to go back a two or three day trip and get things right with this brother who has something against you before you then come back another two or three days and get it right with me. Getting things right with a brother or sister is more important than getting things right with God. Question mark. Thoughts? Okay. Spiritual. We're not, we're not here, we're not supposed to even be here as flesh. We need to serve the flesh and the spirit. And, and, and everything that the spirit is, is love. Yeah, if you look. <laughs> we're getting there, we're going there. How can people. Yep. So this is, this is why I'm getting to this, because sometimes we put more importance on what's going on in here. Not to say it's not important. We put more importance on what's going on in here than what's going on out there, especially in our personal lives. So let's go and look at the greatest commandment. Y'all know I love this commandment. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I think I might have a new one now. Matthew 22, we skip forward several um, chapters to the end. And the Pharisees and the lawyers of the time are trying to trick God. And they came to him and they say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great, pay attention to this, that is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Prophets. How do we usually interpret this? 
Right? So we, we take this, and the way we read it, we tend to say that loving God is, most, is first the most important thing, and then loving our neighbor is the second most important thing, right? That's very good. We tend to translate it the first being greater than the second. Let me ask you this. How many of y'all have doors in your house? All right, I do. Most of the doors in our house, you know, I know some of the new ones I think have three hinges. Ours has two. That door depends on those two hinges. Let me ask you a question. Which hinge is more important? The top or the bottom? They're equal, right? Without one, if I take the bottom one off, the door's going to go up like this. If I take the top one off, the door's going to go like that. It's not going to work correctly. If you actually look at the translations, and most scholars agree with this, the first and second, both of these are the greatest commandments. Your love for God is best shown and proven by the love for your neighbor. And that's why he put it this way, and these two are summed up there. So, and that's why I, I highlighted, if you go back and look, the second is like it, meaning the way this is translated is, is, the, is just like it in, in greatness. So, like I said, for the love of God is best shown and proven by loving your neighbor. To a Jew, a neighbor was another Jew. So, okay, man, we may not treat our Jewish friends the right way, but we can probably improve on this and do pretty good. But they try to, they come along later, and if we go to Luke 10, 25 through 29, they try to trip him up on this. So they try to say, all right. And a lawyer, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And so this guy had been paying attention to what Jesus said, right? And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he basically repeated back to Jesus what Jesus had just told them earlier. I don't know what the time frame was on this, but... And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. Now, if the guy had just stopped right there, he would have been fine. He could have gone on, but he has to push him further. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, well, who's my neighbor then? You know, it's like pushing that, you know... You know, when, when our parents tell us to do something or don't go this far, don't do this, like, well, what do you really mean by that? A.K.A., who is it that I have to love then? Who, who do I have to love? So Jesus goes into the, the Good Samaritan story, and, and I love this. I just, I love this, and, and I, I would have loved to have been there to see this look on this guy's face. Jesus starts out telling the story of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to read it. Most of us know it. You have two Jewish leaders, religious leaders, who leave a dead man, or not a dead man, I'm sorry, a beat up man laying on the side of the road. And a Samaritan comes along. Now, to understand, and I think most of y'all do, they saw Samaritans as dogs. Literally, they, 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 they were to them as dogs. They probably treated dogs better than they treated the Samaritans. They hated Samaritans so much, they built a road around their town so they didn't have to go through it. And so at the end, Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? And, and I, I got a feeling that there was a pause here. I don't think this guy answered Jesus right away because he probably didn't want to answer it. 
And he can't, and he can't even come bring himself to actually say who he was. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And then what does Jesus say? Go and do likewise. He's telling this man to be a Samaritan. So he's telling this guy who, this Jewish guy who's trying to justify himself that if he wants to inherit the kingdom, then he needs to go and be like someone who he thinks is a dog or no better than a dog. Yeah. But this is, this, even with all this and saying all this, this is still pointing to something that's coming. You know, God is establishing the old, these are still part of the old laws, right? This is still part of the Old Testament, the, the love, the Lord, Lord, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's in Deuteronomy, and I believe the um, love your neighbor as yourself is in Leviticus. So he's taking these two verses that are two separate in the Bible and bringing them together. This is the first time this is done in the Bible. But then he even takes it further than what he was. Let's go back to the Passover. So he's done the Passover meal, and he's gone through the Passover meal. And then this is where he starts to get really deep. Because this is where it's about to end and get real. In John 13, 33, he says, Little children, I am with you only a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, and now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. So we've had the old ones. We have the greatest commandments that he gives us. And he's coming along and he's saying, all right, I have a new one to give to you. A new commandment for you to follow. And he says that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. They didn't understand what this meant yet. Because you have to realize at this point, they still didn't realize Jesus was going to die on a cross for them. So they're thinking of all the love that he has shown to them through their, the short ministry that they've been together. And then he says, and this is, I think, one of the most key things that we need to pay attention to. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What's not in here? It doesn't say, I'm going to know that you're my disciples or you're my church or you're my whatever by your name, by your worship service, how you're organized, that you go to church two or three, four times a week. None of that stuff. What does Jesus say? How are, he, how are, how are people going to know that we follow Jesus by our love for who? Expressions of love for our love for one another. Now, again, I'm not saying another, the other stuff's not important, but what I'm saying is this right here, this new commandment, is the most important. Is that we are to show the world who we are by how we treat one another and how we love one another. And that's why I asked last Sunday, how many churches in America, or the world, are known for their love for one another? We're known for our buildings and our music styles and our names. 
VBF, all these different things. Now, some of these things aren't bad things to be known by, but this isn't what God wants us to be known by. His command there, it's a command. It's not a I would like or it would be nice for. His command is for us to love one another as Christ loved us or as he loved us. So when people get a little upset when I say that we're not the reestablishment of the New Testament church, now you understand what I'm saying. I don't mean that to be offensive. I'm saying we have put our focus on a whole lot of other things to establish ourselves as the church of Christ when this right here should be the top of the list. Not to say a lot of the other things are not important, but this should be our focus. That's all right. Um, love for one another. If we have perfect love for one another, we need Christ. But we do need Christ because we do not have perfect love for one another. Yeah. Yeah, nowhere in here am I saying. Yeah. No, nowhere in here am I saying we don't need Christ. We, we need his love. We need the type of love that he has. And that's what I'm trying to point back to. And this is, this is where it even gets deeper. So I've really hit it. But the next verse, this is where it hits home. Because you have to realize these apostles had no clue really what was about to happen. None whatsoever. And I probably shouldn't have put the whole verse in there. But no, I did. Because I've, Simon Peter looks at him and says, and you've got to under, this isn't a, there's got to be like almost a desperation in, the, in his voice here. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. Does anyone understand what this means to Peter? Where's Christ going when he leaves here? But where is Christ going when he leaves here? We know. He's going to the cross. He's going to be crucified. So he tells Peter, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. Does anyone know Peter's story? Peter was crucified upside down because he did not. I wonder if this is part of the reason why he, he had himself crucified upside down. He said he did not want to be crucified the same way Christ was. So a lot of people will take this and say, well, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but eventually you're going to be part of my church. No, he's letting him know, you will follow me later. You will be crucified. Where I'm going right now, you can't go now, but you will later. And so I say all this because I think we've lost these two verses in some sense. I mean, we can't... Sometimes we can't even get along with ourselves, right? And I don't say it to be mean. You know, we're human. But I, I feel if this was our focus and we lived this out, all the other stuff would work out pretty well. Really well. And, and I think that's why God established this new command. And so, think about that because what we're going to dive into next week is the ecclesia in action. So we're going to go through. We know Christ died. We know he, he, he resurrected. And we're going to look at what the church, the church that, you know, or the movement, 
the way as it was called, we're going to look at it and what it did and see if we are mimicking those same things. Any questions or comments? I got one minute. All right, 15 seconds. <laughs> All right, we'll finish early. Thank you.